You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London Southeast. This is the show that provides informative, educational, and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello, and welcome to this Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins, and today I have the absolute privilege of speaking with Andy Bruff, whom a fund manager friend of mine rightfully recently introduced me to him as a legend. Andy is the head of the small and mid-cap team at Schroeder's, as well as a lead and co-fund manager of several funds within that team. Andy, how are you? And welcome, mate. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Good to have you here, sir. Now, um, Andy, I'm going to start this conversation with you by asking you initially about you gaining your economics degree and you started your career in accounting and you went on to chartered account- to be a chartered accountant at Pricewaterhouse. Do you want to share with us your greatest learnings from that time as a chartered accountant, please? Well, it, it's quite interesting. You know, when I, when I left university, one in four people who qualified went on to become chartered accountants. You know, we, we sort of populated the whole industry, my sort of... Uh, uh, generation and you know I was very lucky in accounting to work with some you know visionary people who really kind of taught me how to look at numbers appreciate how to put together where the problems could lie and that's still been really good stead actually for you know looking at companies over the last sort of 35 years plus you know when I left university I never knew this job uh, called fund management existed uh, where you get to gamble with other people's money and they pay you lots of money to do it. So I can now see why it is incredibly popular. But uh, I think having that grounding as an accountant and the ability to look at numbers and understand them is absolutely key to being a good fund manager. You touched on a really important point there in the sense of being able to look at the numbers and differentiate the good numbers from the bad numbers. And that seems to be getting more and more as a, a key bit of due diligence, especially for large institutions and essentially private investors who are trying to do it, you know, not look at which funds to purchase like, you, like your own. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. If you look at, you know, let's take one of my largest holdings, Fraser's, you know, everyone has a view on Mike Ashley. But the view they probably don't have is he's probably got the most conservative accounts in the London market. Uh, as he said to me, he said, I own 70% of the company. Why am I going to diddle myself? Yeah. So, and you contrast that to someone who is bonus depends on the share price in another company and they don't have many shares. Then they are going to be, for want of a better phrase, pushing the envelope you know, in terms of recognising profits. And it's quite interesting when you look at, you know, if you go and read the last statement from Revolution Beauty, a classic case of a company actually stuffing the supply chain or you know, Aston Martin, et cetera, uh, because the people involved, you know, either sold a lot of shares and they're trying to meet market expectations rather than saying we're in this for the long term. And actually that is the sort of company we want to be invested in. We want to be invested in where we're aligned with the management and the owners. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be talking about some of the holdings that you've got um, a bit later on. But yeah, that's a very, very good point regarding numbers and, and alignment and, and skin in the game, etc. Now, I want to, go, I want to go back a little bit. Um, Chartered Counter to Price Waterhouse moved to Schroders in June 1987 as an equity fund manager. How did that transition come about? You're already looking at the numbers and involving yourself with companies, but you made the transition from Price to um, Schroders, 87. Yeah, I think at the time, um, a lot of people who left accounting went into the glamour area of corporate finance. Yeah, uh, Unfortunately, my accent didn't quite cut it to get into corporate finance. And the uh, recruiter said, well, there's an analyst job at Schroder's on the fund management side. And so um, I went for a few interviews and, you know, I still wake up in a cold sweat with some of the answers that I actually gave the people at the time. And uh, still can't believe to this day that I've actually uh, made it in. And so I started off and I was analysing <clears throat> five sectors. I used to do the brewing sector, leisure, textiles, uh, media and printing. You know, meeting such characters as Robert Maxwell, etc. And just learning. Wow. And then after about 18 months... They said, okay, we'd like to put you in charge of the small companies team because we thought that's one area. It's an area where you can do the least damage. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. So I started there. Yeah. So I've been managing money for 35 years. Brilliant. Now, um, no, I love that. Robert Maxwell thrown in as well, um, just to put a bit of sauce on there. Now, um, Andy, please can you share with us, um, because obviously... Schroders is, is a massive, massive company. Just share some of the, the depth and scale of Schroders, um, which, as some people know, was founded in 1804, so it's been around for a long time. Well, it's, it's, it's hard to believe that um, I think in 1989, the Schroders group turnover was a million pounds. Wow. A million pounds. And that company, and this is, this, by the way, this is my fourth Schroder office. You know, we've gone from having a small office in Old Jewry. We've, we've always been in about 250 metres of each of the offices to this huge place on London Wall as the business has sort of grown and transformed. You know, it's huge success overseas, great franchise, and it's always moved with the times. And, you know, I touched earlier saying alignment of interests. You know, the family who own circa 40-odd percent I've always said, you know, we're taking a long-term view here. We're building up in China and India and emerging markets, and now we're into private assets and all these other areas. And we've always, you know, moved as as the markets have moved. And um, it's a real luxury being part of an organisation where where they're prepared to take a long-term view and sort of recruit internally. Indeed, our you know our current CEO started off as an analyst at Schroders, left. To go to a couple of other places, then has come back and has become CEO. So very much embedded in the, the culture of the firm. Excellent. And um, until recently, um, you had um, Bruno Trodo in the business as well, and sadly passed a few years ago. Yep. And we have uh, we have a cafe uh, which turns into a bar in the evening here with a little restaurant, and it's appropriately named Bruno's. Brilliant. I didn't know that. Well, I'll have to pay a visit at some point. Thank thank you for sharing that with us. Now, Andy, as you as you touched on, you you started managing other people's money or money, as you say, 
1989, January 89, to be to be accurate. Now, how, how did that feel at the time? Were you daunted? Were you excited? Were you like, come on, I'm up for this? Well, it's, it's quite different to um, in terms of the information, because in those days we had uh, a unit trust, the Institutional UK Smaller Companies Fund, which I still run, and the valuation used to arrive once a week. Yeah. So you could then see how many shares you've got. You know, if you were selling out of a holding, you had to phone someone up to make sure you didn't sell too many. And I remember that uh, portfolio very well um, because all the, the front page was obviously where the largest holdings were because they were ranked in sort of holding size. And there were quite a few property stocks in there. And 1989, the property sector collapsed and these shares just halved in value. And my, my belief as a fund manager is that, you know, fund managers Achilles heel is which sector cost them a lot of money to start with. And for me, it was property. And so that is why I virtually have no property holdings now. But was I daunted? I think it was, you know, as a fund manager, you've got, you've got to remember that it's not your money. You know, it's a great temptation to think, I've got this stake in this company, I've got this, I've got that. It's, at the end of the day, it's not your money. You're trying to make your best for your clients. And so you've got to always remain humble and confident and not stray into arrogance. Absolutely agree with you on that. And the fact that you've reiterated the fact that you're, you are the custodian of other people's money. Now, I, I, want, to, I want to touch on this because it, it, it is something that can can um, curtail someone else's career when they've started to manage someone else's money and immediately the market has a little bit of a hiccup. Now, you'd only been in, you know, in the hot seat as such for nine months, Sandy, uh, when the US markets were impacted by the Friday the 13th mini stock market crash of October the 13th, 1989. Now, as a young fund manager, what were your memories of that first sort of what's going on? You're looking around for the rest of the team going, what's, what's this? I think I think what it kind of taught taught you was that you know if you're in stocks where hope is the large basis of the valuation you know so we're going to be game changers the internet's going to be amazing or or whatever it was back back in the day then um, then that is quite an easy way to lose money so it's all about you know people talk about fundamentals but you've got to be in companies that fundamentally have got some sort of growth prospects uh, where they can deliver a rising stream of dividends from a rising stream of earnings. And the first shock you get when the market suddenly collapses, when you're managing money, is a shock. Now, don't forget, six, three months, four months after I joined Schroeder's, we had the 87 crash. So I wasn't managing money at the time, but that was quite a sobering experience when I sort of just started buying shares for myself. Um, watching the Bruff family wealth sort of dissipate at an alarming rate. So um, that's it, it, one thing in this job, if I'm honest, is you're always learning. You know, whoever you meet, you take something out of that meeting and apply it for later on. And that is one of the great beauties of this job is the, the ability to keep learning. Brilliant. Fantastic reply. I appreciate that, Andy. Thank you. Now, Andy, you're the, the head of the mid-cap team at Schroeder's, smaller mid-cap team, should I say, and the lead or co-fund manager 
of a number of funds. Please can you share with us a synopsis of your roles and responsibility within that team or those teams, should I say? Right, okay. So we've got a variety of funds. We've got the Schroeder Mid-250, we've got the Schroeder Smaller Companies Funds, we've got um, bespoke mandates for sovereign wealth funds. And I've got a team of which includes Gene uh, and Ian. And you know Ian's got a PhD in quantum physics, so he actually can understand what companies do, how they make it. Uh, Jean uh, used to be a retail analyst, so she's very good on the sort of retail sector. And so my job as team leader is to make sure that balance is applied. And the golden rule is, is that if I'm not happy with the numbers, then we sell the shares. I don't care how good the technology is. I don't care whether they're going to dominate the world. If I feel on my analysis, the numbers aren't right, uh, then we sell the shares. Yeah, that's a good discipline to, to, to maintain. Now, Andy, you've been the manager, managed the well-known um, Schroeder Midcap 250 fund since its launch in 89. Sorry, November 1999, correction there. Um, please can you share with us, possibly, without giving away the, um, the secret source, the methodology and the screening strategy that you have used and your team continues to use now. So, so when I started managing money, the chief investment officer at the time, John Gavet, uh, said to me, he said, oh, he said, inflation's, equities are a great hedge against inflation. And that sort of got me thinking, actually, that actually as a fund manager, we probably want to try and invest in inflation. So I dreamt up this idea of the triangle. So you had A stocks going up, you had C stocks coming down, and you had B stocks at the middle. And you know, if, if people want, are going to trust you with their money, they need to understand your investment process um, and feel comfortable with it, and then see how it's applied. So an A stock for us, very simply, was you know where demand exceeds supply. So can you put your price up? So if you look back to the days with EasyJet, you know, you used to get on the plane with Mrs. Bruff and the three kids and we'd have a look around. And I said, well, you better go and sit with the kids because there's not enough seats. I'll go and sit at the back, yeah? Uh, at which point Mrs. Bruff uh, reached into her handbag and pulled out the allocated seating, uh, which she bought for 60 quid. So we could all sit together now that 60 quid went straight to the bottom line. EasyJet shares sort of doubled from seven quid to 14 quid and went into the FTSE 100. And then if you think back, you know, when I, when I started at Schroeder's as a, a media analyst amongst others, you know, regional newspapers were the stock market darlings because they were the only places you could advertise jobs, property and cars. And they had a monopoly over their local area and then they started to invade each other's area with free newspapers, yeah, which we which we used to all deliver after school anyway to the first ten houses, and then throw the rest in the ditch somewhere to pick up our you know three pound fifty or whatever. And then suddenly all the jobs went to LinkedIn, all the property went to Right Move, and all the cars went to Auto Trader, and that whole sector has disappeared, you know. And then B stocks is where capacity goes in and out, you know. So people said to me. Well, Andy, look at the number of pubs closing. Why don't you hold any pubs? And I said, because actually my kids have introduced me to this concept of 
pre-drinking, which when I looked it up in Wikipedia, it said, invite your invite your friends round to your dad's mum mum and dad's house <laughs> and drink and drink and drink their booze and then go out and order one bottle of Bex with eight straws to last the evening. And so when you talk to people about this sort of triangle and the investment process and how things move around, then you can see people then going, actually, you know what? I can see that happening in my everyday life. And if you, I will say you've got to have the three Ps. You've got to have a process that people go, right, yep, I understand that. You've got to have some performance to make money at some point in time. And then you need a bit of a personality to sell it and bring it to life. I love that um, concept as well, the free drinking bit as well. No, brilliant, fantastic, Andy. Now that touches straight on almost, almost seamlessly to my ne next questions. You, you once stated that the FTSE 250 is the Heineken index as it gets refreshed like no other. Uh, do you want to expand on that uh, for us, please, for, for our newer listeners? Yeah, so every quarter the indices are rebased. So if a company is... Um, doing very well and it goes into the FTSE 100 then we sell it because you know it's a bit like being a Burnley fan this season you're having a fantastic time yeah top of the championship winning every game you're going to get back into the premiership and the same thing's going to happen again you can't hack it and you're going to get relegated and the same thing happens with the 250 yeah Aberdeen falls out of the FTSE 100 does well for a while gets back in probably won't last so and then at the bottom end, you've got companies falling out or companies being taken over. So in 2003, in one year, there were 103 changes to that index. Wow. And that's, and that's, why, that's the, why I came up with the phrase, the Heineken index. Right, and rightfully so. Now, you, you, the team and yourself in the um, Schroeder UK Mid-Cap Investment Trust have a strategy whereby... If a company gets promoted to the FTSE 100, you automatically sell it. Can you share some of the nuances regarding that and why you don't continue to hold them? Or does that, and does it still apply? Yeah, it still, it still applies. So basically, okay. in, in fund management, everyone tells you how to buy a share. Yeah, Buy this one uh, because it's been left behind. Probably a good reason why. Buy this one because relative to something I found in South Korea, it's very cheap. Oh, buy this one, I've just seen the management, they're great. No one tells you how to sell a share. No one teaches you how to sell a share because selling a share is very hard because, oh, am I selling it? I've sold it, but, but it's gone up. Oh, maybe I've sold it too early. You know, you're quite happy to buy them, but selling them is quite hard. So you need to have something whereby you can take the emotion out of it. So it could be, you know, are they making super margins? Have they made lots of acquisitions? You know, am I worried about the quality of the accounting? But the best way of taking the emotion out is when they go into the FTSE 100, because that is as good as it gets for a lot of stocks. Go into the FTSE 100, you know, look at Microfocus, went into the FTSE 100 at 18 pounds, sold, fell out again, bought it back at three quid, got bid for. Yeah. So it's just having that sort of discipline and very few companies you know i know how ashstead jd have gone on but a lot of companies just fall fall back out again i mean mentioned phrases 
Last time round, uh, Praetors went into the FTSE 100 at £8.50, sold it all, fell out at £2.50, bought it back. And here we are, you know, sort of reducing, it's back at £7.50 back in the FTSE 100. Yeah. It is, it's just having a luxury with an automatic sell signal. No, thank, thank you for that. I, I really appreciate that full reply, Andy. Now, I, I'm going to ask a little bit more now. So on the opposite side of that, when a stock falls out of the 250, there's considerations taken and you don't automatically sell those. What dynamics in using your um, earlier earlier answer, numbers are you looking forward to think, actually, that we're going to stick with this one for a little while longer? So so we, we take a view. It's can you get back in? Have you got a business model that gives you a chance of growing and getting back in. So something like Keller fell out of the FTSE 250. A new management team under Michael Spackman came in. Um, we knew him from his days at Cape and he's turned the business around and he's got it back into the 250. Me Group, which used to be called Photo Me, but it's now changed its name to Me Group because it's uh, three divisions, Photo Me, Feed Me, Wash Me. Uh, and you know, back on track, we've held the kept hold of the shares in some of the 250 funds because we think it can actually get back in. If we don't think it can get back in, then we will sell it exactly. So, you've got to know what you own, is, is the is the is this is the answer, really, isn't it? Oh, yeah, you need to know what you own, yeah, absolutely. Now, what, what are your thoughts, Andy, on the recurring issue of undervalued? UK 250, 250 HQ companies and the, and the and the additional recurring problem that we undervalue them as, as investors in the UK, but someone else comes along and makes a, a minimum for premium sort of bid for it and it's gone. It's taken over for 20% and 30% rather than the long-term 10-year sort of returns we might have of, of maybe 80 to 100 or 250%. How do we, yeah, why it, do we continue to undervalue our companies? I don't know if I knew the answer to that. Um, so the UK market's always been an open market, you know, and everyone thinks, oh, we, you know, we're selling the family silver. But what we've effectively done is we've sort of refreshed the index with new companies sort of coming up. You know, the likes of Halma, Sparex, Sarko have gone all the way up into the FTSE 100. And, you know, a lot of the companies we've sold haven't been fantastic deals for the people who are buying them. You know, it'd be a great deal for shareholders uh, because then we can go and reinvest something into a new area. So it's a fact of life. And also, you know, when I started, the UK stock market was really controlled by sort of four big groups, you know, Schroders, M&G, Peru, UBS, Gartmore, and those four would probably have sort of 25% of the UK stock market. Now, it's dissipated around the world. So you've got no sort of control, really, of keeping companies public. If the price is right, then, then people will sell and move on. And you know, when, when, you, when you become quoted, that's not the end of your journey. That's the start of your journey. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, Andy, you within your your portfolio at Schroders, you have a large weighting in one of the UK's institutional private investors' favourite stocks, 
and that is of course Games Workshop. Now it had a, a quite a difficult 2022, but all investors got a nice little Christmas present in the middle of December. Um, I want to ask you, Fome, what your thoughts are about that deal, uh, potential deal with um, Amazon to develop the Warhammer 400k franchise. The potential so, of that deal, should I say? It, it's very interesting, Games Workshop. You know, if you go and look at the history of the company, everyone thinks it's been fantastic for years. But it wasn't until Kevin Rantree took over as CEO in 2015 that the business got absolutely transformed away from, if you like, uh, the Warhammer enthusiasts into Warhammer enthusiasts with a financial approach. And Kevin Rantree is probably one of the best CEOs I have met in my career. And as we were coming out of COVID, every time I did a management call or whatever with various companies, I'd always ask them the question, what have you learned about your business during COVID? And the best reply came from Kevin Rantree. And he said, Andy, what we've learned is we really rock. Now, I spoke to him on Amazon a couple of weeks ago. I said, look, in my experience, Kevin, when Amazon do a deal with another company, like they did with Microfocus, then they take warrants over 5% of the company. And he said, that's why it's taken so long. We do business our way or we don't do it. So here is Games Workshop, three billion market cap company, taking on a very large river, or Amazon, uh, you know, a trillion and saying, look, if you don't want to do business our way, then we're not doing it. And what, you know, I touched on culture earlier when I was talking about Schroders. You know, the culture of a firm is absolutely critical. And Kevin Rantry has done that in spades at Games Workshop. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I want, to, I want to ask, expand a little bit on something you've touched on there about the quality of leadership. Now you've 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 interviewed, you've visited, you've had conversations, you've had calls with. What are the recurring traits that you see that make the better and the best leaders of companies? Do I have to name names? But the traits I'm more concerned here about, so we can identify them hopefully when some of us attend an AGM or we go on a call with a CEO. So, so the best trait is those that know what they don't know. There's a great temptation if you're a CEO to say, you know what, I'm CEO, I can do that. So, I don't want, you know, if you take Kevin, for example, he doesn't know a lot about media. So he's got a, got a few experts in uh, to run it, make sure they're the right fit. And then say, right, actually, this is the way we do deals here. You know, you take Mike Ashley, uh, Fraser's, he doesn't know a lot about high-end goods. So he's left it to his son-in-law to do the whole flannels elevation thing. And he's gone back to doing what he's good at, which is actually running the guts of the business. And so there's great temptation for CEOs to go, yeah, I can do all that. And what I said earlier about learning from people is when you spend time with these people you learn that actually it's quite okay to say no i don't know that let's get someone else to have a look at it 
but it's a, a really important trait to have because otherwise you spread yourself too thinly and you don't have that degree of expertise. And then by bringing other people in, you've made them part of the team and the team is stronger, but you're still leading it. Thank you for that. That's a fantastic reply. Thank you, Andy. Now, I wanted to touch on the, the leadership qualities and the, the numbers and all the rest of it and ask you this question. What triggers you and your team to lose faith in the long-term holding when you're thinking, okay, we're either going to reduce this or we're going to exit it now? What are the numbers? What are the fundamentals you're looking at and going, enough is enough now? So we touched on sell signals, right? So basically, frequent acquisitions is a is a no-no for us. We, know, we, we will sit down and we will piece together or I'll piece together what we think the real underlying earnings are. So NCC, for example, we sold at £3.60, virtually the holding, because too many acquisitions, difficult to see what was happening to the core business, looked like it was going backwards, then had a big profit warning. So, you know, it's quality of accounting, frequent acquisitions is, is pretty much up there. And then are you making super margins? You know, so a, a classic case in the past would be sort of dignity. Funeral business every year, it just put its prices up and profits just rose and rose. Shares price went to 25 quid, uh, paying super dividends, taking on debt. And then the whole thing blew up. And here we are, you know, with a bid at £5.50. But once you made the decision to sell, that's it. You got, you know, you just say, right, that's it. Sell it. Let's move on. There's lots of other shares to go and have a think about. People will think, oh, if I sell it, you know, will they ever speak to me again? Yeah. Again, it comes back to that earlier point. It's not your money. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, now, Andy, you're known for blending growth and value across strategies and in the portfolios um, that you run. Um, how much conviction do you currently have towards UK quoted small and mid cap equities? And by which I mean underweight, balanced or overweight regarding that sort of exposure? I think, you know, at the moment, I'm really positive on the UK mid and small cap. I'm really positive. I have a lot of money invested in this space and I've been investing further in the, in the funds. Because I think I look at it and I go, actually, these shares are cheap across the piece. There's a lot of cheap shares. I don't think the UK is the basket case that everyone else thinks it is. There will always be you know, stocks which are uh, expensive. But you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to find companies that are changing. So one of the first shares I got Schroders to buy back in 1988-89 was Provident Financial. And I went to a meeting with the new guy who came in, John Van Kuffler, came back, got everyone to buy the shares. We made 66 times our money on those shares. Problem Financial went into the FTSE 100. At 32 quid, the uh, CEO at the time, Peter Crook, a bit of an unfortunate name, uh, blew the whole thing up. And um, it was in the wilderness. It fell all the way back into the small cap index. Went to see them, I don't know, six months ago, and they got out of the door-to-door -door lending business. They got a banking license. Their rates have gone from, I don't know, 2,500% interest to 29. And it, 
people completely missed the transformation of this company. And the results this week showed they're back on track and the shares have sort of gone up 60% since then. And so it's a classic case of, you know, looking for things that are changing. You know, people are afraid of change, but actually, if you're running a company, you've got to be thinking about what changes am I going to have to make to keep myself in the game? You know, using the Fraser's example, they've gone from, you know, running a jumble sale called Sports Direct to selling 19 of the top 20 brands in the world. Because you've got to keep moving. And that's what we're trying to do when we look at the portfolio is can your business evolve? Can it actually grow? Because history is littered with companies that haven't made it. So earlier this year, I dug out the FTSE 100 and 250 uh, constituents from December 99. Uh, and I sent it around to everyone saying, where are they now? So many of those stocks have disappeared, gone bust. You know, GEC, for example, was the 12th largest company in the UK. So yeah, can you I think evolve? Unfortunately, that does happen quite quite frequently in the sense of co companies some, sometimes are thriving and sometimes they get the wrong management at the top and they make a significant purchase maybe, um, as yeah. in the case of what Microfocus did with um, the Hewlett-Packard um, part that they purchased and never recovered. Um, yeah. Talking yeah. about things not going quite right, Andy, um, it's often said that profit warnings arrive in threes. Um, given your near four decades of managing money, do you have a certain strategy, agreement or view on this in a sense of when the first profit warning arrives, how are you assessing it and thinking, mm, maybe I should get out? Or are you reviewing it to think, actually, we might be able to ride this one out? Well, it's like anything, isn't it? People calling, yeah, profit warnings come in threes. And then, so we'll wait. Now, companies, are, I think, have been more realistic in their sort of, uh, approach and not quite kitchen sinking things but just taking uh, an approach to say right okay market's gone against us let's be conservative so again it comes back to the point we look at the business and say right okay can you recover can you can you evolve this business you know uh, uh, and we typically get the chairman in or or the sid which and and then take a view so you can't have one rule. It's really looking at the business and saying, right, we've had a profit warning. Um, hopefully, you know, we would have seen the, the problems ahead and got out, you know, like Carillion, uh, way before it went, went under and other things. But yeah, with a profit warning, you just have to go back and look at the numbers and, and get some comfort that actually everything's okay. Or is it a case of they've had the profit warning, they've been stretching the creditors, so they've got too much debt, and they're really just praying things are going to get better. Yeah, th thank you for that reply. Now, on the concerns of, of, of profit warnings and, and difficulties in the market, we're in a, obviously right now in a higher interest, interest rate environment, and um, a lot of companies have got a major issue with levels of, of high borrowing. And then next, the debts are going to need refinancing going forward. Um, are you and your team very studious about companies with debt? Do you avoid them with higher debt? Or are you looking to support them when they come to raise cash? 
I'll never, I'll never forget what Dave Wheeland, the founder of JJB, said to me once. He said, "Here, lad, here, lad. You know what? If you're not generating profits and cash and paying down debt, you're going bust." And uh, that, that, that is it. You know, can you are you generating the profits to pay down the debt? Now, everyone gets excited with debt is two times EBIT, EBITDA, or whatever. You know, but if we look at private equity, it's like seven or eight times. So the problem's not in the quoted arena. I would argue the, quote, the problem's in the private arena. And if you're going to have to refinance those debts, you know, you, a bit like Superdry had to do, you know, not using traditional sources of finance, you're paying like sort of 10%. And so that is a consideration we look at pretty closely, the level of debt. Because if someone oh, famously... Someone once famously said to me, never ever underestimate the ability of a large amount of debt to erode the value of equity at an alarming rate. Spot on. And it happens so frequently. It's, it's bizarre. It's like I'm often I'm often looking and going, you know, the share price was so high six months ago, a year ago. Why weren't they raising money then? And now it's down here. We're raising money. It's like I don't understand. I don't understand that at all. Timings of it sometimes. Now, Andy, you've got a decent position in um, AIM 100 listed Tremor International, the digital advertising solutions company. However, the, the market's always been a little bit, what about it? We don't, the, the complete disregard for the, the company's positive fundamentals, its potential, et cetera. However, you've kept and your team have kept quite steadfast with a strong conviction in the company going forward. Um, what are your thoughts currently regarding that particular company? And um, the advertising space well, per se, really. Well, if you look at the advertising space, you know, that has changed dramatically. You know, you and I were brought up when we had one, you know, uh, advertising channel, it V1 or ITV as it's now. And so that whole business has sort of changed dramatically how you get a hold of uh, eyeballs. And Trevor, along with, I think, the trade desk, Magnite, programmatic, uh, effectively said, right, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to attach articles to advertising. They've done the deal with uh, Hisense, so they've got the data from all the TV. Uh, but the stock market's just gone, well, we don't really fancy it. It's, it's Rayleigh. We've uh, had, you know, horror experiences with Globo and various other things. Uh, but the company bought back a huge amount of shares. And so... I would expect the management team whose who's incentive package comes to an end this year would be looking to hopefully realise value. But, you know, again, it's, 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 an, it's an industry that's sprung up. You've got the, the huge one out there, Trade Desk. But, you know, News International spent a fortune trying to get into that space with Unruly. They sold it to Tremor. They've got 7%. So... I think it's a space that hopefully is going to consolidate next year. You know, three of us, three of us control fifty percent. So hopefully, we won't, there won't be too many phone calls. But that's you know, in, in some of these in, in some of these new industries, then they are very fast growing, and it it comes down to have you got a platform? So if you go back to the company called. Cambridge Silicon Radio, which used to take pictures of, of for your camera, 
phone or whatever, uh, everyone went, that, that business is over. Well, they sold that, the, the business that was over for $300 million one day, valued at zero by the analysts, and then bought back a load of shares and actually developed a platform which enabled them to not be swept away. Now, hopefully, Tremor has got a platform now where they can just put more and more things on it. But, you know, it's not for the faint-hearted, but it's got cash on the balance sheet, it's buying back shares. Um, and, you know, the reason we've got such a big holding is because the shares went up so much. You know, we did actually sell a lot at seven or eight pounds, but sometimes you can't sell as many as you want to when things are moving so quickly. Brilliant. Thank you for that reply, Andy. I really appreciate it. Now, I want to touch slightly now on your, your personal investing style. Does it change? Does the Bruff family money um, get invested within Schroders and elsewhere, or is it all, all within Schroders, mate? What's your personal investing style? My personal investing style is I very I don't buy individual small cap stocks or mid cap stocks. Uh, I haven't done for like twelve years. I think uh, I've got one holding. When I was like twenty eight, playing golf at Hadley Wood and used to put your name on the board, so you're never quite sure who you were playing with. And uh, I got to the first hole and there was a wizened old man there a bit like me now really and so i got round to the uh got round to the fourth hole i said oh mate have you got a job or what and he went yeah he said i'm chairman of a public company i went yeah yeah sure you are i said i'm, I'm some young thruster in the city and he said no no me and my me and my brother we've uh we closed the company in 1964 eight and a half p a share yeah and at the current at that time, I think the shares were about ten pounds. They're now a hundred and twenty. They're now a hundred and twenty pounds, right? And they've just paid a special dividend of five pounds for the interim stage. So it's yeah. the largest. It's the largest company in the UK stock market that is followed by no one. Right? It's called Mount View Estates, and that's you know. Personally, it's a store of value, um, but the brother and sister now control 77%. Mark Pez has got six. You know? And so, actually, I, I can put that to one side, not worry about it. I've got I own 2% of the investment trust, personally. That's a big chunk of change. You know, it's, I'd rather be... So when people say, well, you've had a tough year, or I sit down with my kids, and they go, Dad, a bit disappointing last year, wasn't it, performance? And I say, well, yes, kids, but... Um, the dividend went up by 18%. Now, to put that in context with your holding, that is another week of nights out. Oh, Dad, you're a genius. Well done. Yep. Thank you for that. I love, love that re reply. Now, you you talk, I'm going to move on to a question I was going to ask a bit later on. You talk about nights out and et cetera. What, can you share with us, Andy, your love of, of jazz and where people can find you possibly playing jazz, please? I don't play jazz. I tell you, I was before my dad died. I sat him down. I think about two thousand and eight, and I said, "Dad, just tell me everything you want to do before you die." And he said, oh, "I want to do this, that. I want to go." He said, "I want to catch a salmon." So we were on the spay fishing, and uh, Richard came into the hut, and he at the time was the chairman of Jazz FM, and he said, um, 
Andy, will you will you host this show, Jazz in the City? And will Schroeder sponsor it? And I said, well, Richard, I don't really like jazz. And Schroeder's are down to their last one and a half billion, so probably not. But I know a man who will. So I used to write with Paul Kavanagh of Killick. So we that's how it was launched, Jazz in the City on Jazz FM. And to go back to that thing you asked me about Pricewaterhouse and what I learned. Well, the first guest on the show was Ian Powell, who at the time was a senior partner of Pricewaterhouse. And he just had 24,000 applicants for 2,000 jobs. Wow. So Mr. Powell, Mr. Powell, welcome to the show. I said, when I left Pricewaterhouse, I found my interview file. And I said, under appearance, it said either tasteless or trendy. Which, given I was wearing my dad's suit at the time, I kind of let go, right? And the conclusion from this partner was um, Price Waterhouse didn't get to where they are today without taking a risk. And I think this guy's worth the risk. So, Mr. Powell, my question to you is 24,000 applicants, 2,000 jobs. How do you know you're taking enough risk? And he said, Andy, that is the question that keeps me awake every night. So, and I've taken that into when I've been hiring people. I say, right. Is this person is this person different? Are they worth a risk? And it's it's a great thing to have because you know touching on the leadership, it, it's about taking risks. It's about not hiring people who are going to tell you you're brilliant. It's about hiring people who are slightly different, who are going to tell you something you don't know. And about four years ago, I was at a black tie do, and the, the partner who wrote that was there, Mark Armour, and I went up, shook his hand, and said, "Thank you. I owe my career to you." Fantastic. So it's, it's, it's about having a, an eye for talent as well, isn't it? And giving yeah. giving opportunities to some that, you know, that uh, are not necessarily the same as everybody else. And I think that creates a nice bit of diversity within teams as well. Now, Andy, I love it that you pay it forward as well, because you've got some charitable endeavours that you partake in, including prostate and, and, and crises. But I want to speak to you about um, speakers for schools, which um, you touched on um, when we were speaking regarding um, Robert Peston as well, the heavyweight journalist. Yeah, no, he approached, he, he suddenly realised that he was being only invited to Harrow and Eton to speak. So he, he went to the local school near me in Muswell Hill and he set up this uh, speakers for schools. He got this hedge fund manager to, to back it. And it's quite interesting, actually, you go into local schools. I did one in Broxley in South London back in November uh, to you know, a group about 76 formers. And it's quite interesting walking in and saying to them, you know, I've just had a chat with the headmistress on the way in and I asked her what grades you need to get back into the sixth form. And she told me, and then she asked me what grades I've got. And so, and she's told me that the only reason I'm here is because I've been invited because uh, I wouldn't have got back in. So you, you kids are already ahead of me. And then while I try and just tell them a load of stories about how the market works, what the opportunities are, how I've backed various people, you know, privately and in education with their business ideas. And some have worked, some haven't. But it's a case of, you know, just getting to try and think differently. Brilliant. I, lo I love that reply now, Andy. I'm, co I'm conscious that we've had you on here for a, a little while. So I'm going to ask one final question, if I may. Um, Andy, you've been managing money since 1989. And you've experienced far more than most of the fund managers in the investment industry. 
what are your two or three most important lessons or learnings that you've identified as integral to your investing success over the past near four decades, please, sir? I think it's it, it's it's been the ability to spot things early that are either going to do really well, you know, backing entrepreneurs like Ashley or whatever. Uh, it's been the ability to spot things that are wrong, like independent insurance and Carillion. And, you know, basically, it's there's no substitute for hard work. You know, I, 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 I get out of bed in the morning, I cycle to work and... I come in and I run off all the RNSs and I and I go through them. And if something worries me, if I'm sure about a number, then I'll go and dig out the accounts. And it's just it's relentless. You've just got to work very hard. Same true in any profession, but in fund management, people think that I let the market do the work for me. The shares are going up, it's fine. It's not. You've got to actually really understand what's behind the numbers. Love that response, Daniel. I love the fact you touched on hard work because some people obviously think that um, academia means everything and that intelligence will get them, you know, through through every single hurdle, and it doesn't. Um, so hard work always um, ap applied um, and success. Uh, and also, you know, what you got to remember about common sense is it's not common. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> so very true. So very true, Andy. Thank you ever so much. That was. Andy Bruff, um, fund manager, legend in the city, um, 35 years and still going strong. Andy, thank you ever so much for participating in this Investing Matters podcast with me. Okay. It's been an absolute delight and I look forward to seeing you face to face soon. Okay, thanks, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.